You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of, or the letter of 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter towards the back of your Bibles. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and we will get one in your hands. You can keep it because your homework is to read 1 Peter. It's just five chapters long. It's not that long at all. You can read it in one sitting. It's a great, great book or letter or book, whatever. I won't get into semantics here. Um, well, actually, to be honest with you, next week we start this series. And next week we start this series, and it's called, the series is called Foreigners and Exiles. Foreigners and Exiles is the name of our teaching series through the book or the letter of 1 Peter. And I've been anticipating this study Uh, to study this letter with you for quite some time. I've actually been anticipating it since the beginning of the year, but studying studying it throughout this summer, I'm glad it's finally here. I'm glad we get to study this together. We're calling it Foreigners and Exiles because Peter, the writer of this letter, appeals to his readers saying, as foreigners and exiles here on this earth live in our world in, in a certain way, a such and such way, and we'll get into what he's talking about. In this letter, Peter will teach us how to engage our world through vocation and evangelism and the family unit and cultural renewal. He'll, he'll call us to engage in our world as foreigners and exiles, um, but also having a healthy respect for society, so we're to live in our city with a healthy respect for it while, and this is the huge thrust of, of, of 1 Peter, while at the same time maintaining an appropriate separation from our city. So we're to have a respect for it, honor it, serve it, love it, care for it, give our lives to it, but have a, an appropriate separation from it. And when we strike that perfect balance, and it's a very hard balance to get, when we get our balance, the delicate balance of caring for our city and the people in our city while remaining distinct as followers of Jesus, Peter says it will inevitably bring, when we start doing this, it will inevitably bring forms of suffering. When we live the way that Christ calls us to live in society, loving it, serving it, but maintaining a separation from it, it will bring forms of suffering. But Peter will teach us over and over again, it is better to suffer than to sin. And this is what we'll learn in this letter. And I can't wait to dive into the richness of the book and the relevance of the book. Today, this morning, I would like to do a little introduction to this book. I would like to do a little introduction to the letter of 1 Peter by talking about Peter. And if for no other reason this morning to talk about Peter than to get to know Jesus through Peter. For the story of Peter is the story of Jesus and what Jesus does. So let's start here. I'm going to read a couple things and then I'll pray. I apologize. I've been on break. I might give you five introductions this morning, but let's just go with it. Here is the opening sentence to 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 1. If you have your Bible, you should be opening there. Here's the sentence. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the irony of that first sentence is that when you first, when I, when we first meet Peter, his name is not Peter, neither is he an apostle of Jesus Christ. When we first meet Peter in the beginning of the Gospels, it is Simon, a fisherman, When you first meet Simon, his name is Simon, his given name is Simon, son of Jonah, Simon bar Jonah, or son of John, or we would say Johnson. Simon Johnson is his name. He's a fisherman. He's not really even that good at fishing. Every time he's fishing, he's not catching anything at all. And then Jesus calls him, and the first time Jesus calls him, the first time Jesus sees him, actually, his brother, Peter's brother, brings him, Jesus is like, Peter, or Simon, Simon Johnson, brother of mine. Um, I, I just met the Messiah. You have to come see him. You have to see him. So he brings him to Jesus, and then they meet. And Jesus looks straight at Peter, and the same Greek word looked is the same one that, uh, that John will use later, and that he, and when he saw Peter from a distance when Peter was denying him, that same look. He looks at him at the very beginning of his life or of his, of his relationship with, G, with, with Peter, and he looks at him, and he says this. You are Simon. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So Jesus first meets Simon and says, you are Simon. That's your name, but you will be Peter, which is like a title. 
You will be, and the, the word means rock. You will be rock. You will be a rock. Now, here again is irony, because Simon is not a rock. He's not emotionally stable. He's not a solid leader. He's not someone you would build the most important and subversively powerful known uh, movement known as the church. You would not build it upon his life. But there it is. Jesus first meets him and says, you will be this. By the grace of Christ, he will be this. And this is a long process. Peter, or Simon becoming Peter, is a long process. And I love Simon Peter's story because it's so much like my story. Maybe Simon's story is like your story. It's been said that Peter is just like everyone else, just more so. He's just like you and me, just more so. When people ask, and this has been said a lot, when was, and there's been a lot of kind of conversation or debate around this, when was Simon Peter's conversion? When did he become a Christian? When was he saved? And the answer is like 15 times. I don't know if you've ever been asked that question. When, when did you become a Christian? When did you start to follow Jesus? You're like, like 15 times. Like one time in college summer camp, and then one time when I first moved here, and then like two weeks ago, and like it keeps going. Like I keep giving my life. To, it was like that with Peter. Like Peter, when did, when did Peter start to believe? Or when did Peter follow Jesus? Or when did Peter become converted? Was it when he confessed his sin to Jesus? When he first was called by Jesus? And Jesus uh, um, had him catch a giant load of fish. And when he did, Peter fell to the ground and said, leave me, I'm a sinful man. When Peter was aware of his sinfulness in, in front of such greatness as Jesus. Was that when he was converted? Or when he was called, when he called Jesus the Christ, when people said, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, I will say, you are the Christ. Was that when? Or when he walked on water with the Lord. He got three steps in, then he sank, but he got three steps in. That's awesome. Was it when he was restored after the resurrection? Was it when Jesus breathed on him to receive the Holy Spirit? Was it when the Holy Spirit came upon him in Acts 2? And the answer is yes. See, Peter is not really like Paul. Paul, the apostle, had theological, theological exactitude, was called miraculously, transformatively, in one moment was saved, and that was it, and he never turned back. But Peter's story is this fumbling, bumbling, long story arc. How did Simon become Peter? Again, it's a long story, but the most pivotal, pivotal part of that story is found here. And I want to read this to you before... Um, before I pray, that, again, that was a long intro, but here it is. Peter's confession, I'm just going to read this to you guys. His confession, his denial, and his, restor re his restoration. Now, I'm going to read this uh, out of the text, out of, and there are the texts there. You can turn there. However you listen best right now, I would like you to listen. If you listen best, I'm going to read the scriptures. If you listen best by closing your eyes and trying to imagine the story unfold in your head, then do so. If you listen best by turning your own physical Bible to these places and following along with a pencil, then do so. If the best way you listen is by looking at the screen and reading the words with me, then do so. However you listen best, would you please, for a second, just get comfortable in your seat and listen. This is the Word of God. This surrounds Jesus' Last Supper. What I'm going to read surrounds his betrayal his arrest, his trial, his public execution, and his resurrection. Here are three little vignettes that surround it that have to do with Peter. And it's this, Matthew, the first one in Matthew. Jesus told them, this is during the Last Supper, this very night, you, speaking to Peter, will, fall, will all fall away on account of me. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then Peter replied, even if all fall away, if every single disciple here falls away, on account of you, I never will, Jesus. I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. 
Then seizing Jesus, this is in the garden, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And someone there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. And Peter sat down with them by the fire. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. And she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. He speaks like a Galilean. That's who is, who is following Jesus. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Afterward, this is after the resurrection, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. By the Sea of Galilee was where the whole thing happened, where Peter was called, where they did most of their ministry. They're there again fishing. And it happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were all together after the resurrection. And Peter, Peter said, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus, and he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard them say, it's the Lord, he wrapped out his outer gar garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there was fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore by himself. And it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples asked, dared to ask, who are you? They all knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them. And did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord for us today. God, would you bless your word? Would you anoint me? In Jesus' name, amen. Other than Jesus, Simon Peter is the only other fully formed character in the New Testament. We see the progression of the acquaintance with Jesus. He meets Jesus, gets to know Jesus. He observes his power, and we see the progression from that observation to a friendship to becoming Jesus' very best friend. John keeps writing in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved about himself, because there was like this little, little rivalry there, but it was almost clear, if you read any account of the gospel, that Peter was Jesus' very best friend, closest friend. He was the one that represented the 12. Whenever Peter wanted to talk, or whenever Jesus wanted to talk to the 12, he would always talk to Peter. Whenever the disciples did something, he would rebuke Peter. Peter was the only disciple to tell Jesus no. He did it twice. The only one. He was the only one to pull Jesus aside and go, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. Are you crazy? 
And then Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like, they're, they're friends. He's like, you're, 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 you're a stumbling block to me. Like, you are Peter the rock, but your rock is like now a stumbling block. Like, I'm tripping over it now. Like, I'm tripping over you. Stop doing this. We see the progression of being Jesus' acquaintance to becoming his closest friend to becoming the leader of the early church in Acts. Peter is like an Old Testament character where all his sin is laid bare in the text, and his path to redemption has a very long arc. We see no one else really like this in the New Testament other than Jesus. He's like the only true Old Testament character in the New Testament. Peter was a weak, flawed, sinful man who nonetheless is defined by the love that Jesus formed in him. He saw Simon and said, you will be called Peter. What Peter's life teaches us is that there is room for those who have a storied walk with God. Peter teaches us that there is room in the church. There is room in this building. Well, maybe not physically, but there is room in this church for people to have a storied walk with God. This church is almost five years old now. And it's not that old at all, but in the five years, I've seen a lot of, I've seen several people coming in and out of this church, and what I mean by the same people. Like some people would come in and have this radical encounter with Jesus, and then somehow drift into sin again, or bondage again, or destruction again, or habits again, and then come back, and then drift away, and then come back. And there's like, what, what Peter, if Peter shows us anything is that there's room. Like it breaks my heart every single time someone comes in the church and is so excited about Jesus and then leaves the church. It breaks my heart, but there's room when they come back. There's room for people with ups and downs, for people with doubts and failures. There's room for you in the church. But we also have to remember Peter's qualities we have to remember what kept Peter in, the, in that grace and that formation process with Christ. Peter honestly admitted his sins and his failures. Peter lived up to them. He never warped his conscience by rationalization or denial. Even when he denied Jesus and he realized that he had denied Jesus, when the rooster crowed and Jesus looked right at him, he realized it. He didn't try to fake it and go, well, you deserve that, Jesus. He wept bitterly. He knew. He didn't try to hide his sin. He knew openly, I've sinned. He didn't lie or allow his heart to harden in the face of truth. Peter had a soft heart that way. See, it's when we refuse to face our own truth and minimize and justify and rationalize our sin that we have effectively parted company with Jesus. Peter, we don't really see Peter doing that. We see him being impetuous. We see him being headstrong, but never there. Whenever he's faced with the truth, he just submits to it immediately. One writer who writes about the life of Simon Peter says, God easily and eagerly forgives our weaknesses. Only when we pretend to be sinners and pretend to be forgiven does the spiritual life become a charade of pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. It's only when we act like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I've sinned, I've sinned, when we don't feel it to our core, when we're like, I have sinned against God and against other people. It's only when we do that that, we, that that Christianity becomes a charade. It's only when we fake repent that Christianity becomes a charade. But Peter never did that. He was just, there was almost like no guile in him. He was just there. He was fully human. He was fully like, this is it. And when he fails, he's like, I, 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 I did that. Another thing that marked Peter's life with Jesus through ups and downs was his willingness to obey Jesus no matter what. His willingness to obey over and over again, you will see that Jesus tells Peter to do something and Peter will go and do it. The first time when Jesus calls Peter, he's on the Sea of Galilee with him and Jesus wants to speak to this large crowd that gathers and so he decides to use the Sea of Galilee like an amphitheater and he wants to get into a boat and push off from the lake so these people are all gathered on a shore and the, and the, the water kind of turns his voice into a, nan, a natural amphitheater. So he, he, he chooses a boat and he goes, Peter, can, you, can I get in your boat? And he gets in Peter's boat and Peter he goes, push your boat off to the shore a little bit. And so Jesus does a sermon and we're not even told what the sermon is. We're just told they taught a sermon. And then when the sermon was done, he's like, oh, that was a good sermon, that was a good sermon, whatever. And um, Jesus sits down in the boat. 
And he's there with Peter. He's like, hey, let's, uh, let's go fishing. Let's push out. I want to go fishing. And Peter's like, um, I, mean, I mean, you're like the teacher, and you're good at that, but I'm the fisherman. And like, I've been here all night. And so there's no fish. There's like no fish right now. So, and it's, in, it's like in the day, it's like hot, and fish don't like, but, and then he says this. He's like, he explains how, Jesus, there are no fish out there to be caught. But he says this, but because you've said so, I'll do it. Because you've said so, I'll do it. And this marked Peter's life. There are times when he didn't understand what was going on, but because you've said so, this, this obedience marked his life. So not only just honesty, but obedience. And this is what kept him, though his ups and downs and his flaws, yes, he had many of them. What kept him close to Jesus was his honesty and his obedience. There was this time when Jesus preached a hard sermon about himself being the sacrificial lamb. And he says that I'm the sacrificial lamb and then you have to eat my body and drink my blood as a sacrificial lamb. And if you do not, you have no part of me. And all the disciples up to that point, and there were, there were many, left him and were like, whoa, this is getting crazy. Like, we're not following anymore. You're talking about cannibalism and us eating you. And like, this is weird. I'm out of here. We're leaving. And they all leave. And then the 12 are left. And Peter's there standing. And Jesus looks at them and goes, are you going to leave too? And Peter speaks up. And this is, the, this is like the honesty that Peter, that like protrudes from his life. He just stands in front of Jesus. He's like, where are we going to go? Where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. The things that we've seen, we cannot deny. You are the, I can't deny that. You're the Messiah. I've, I've left my boats. I've left my fishing company. I've left it all. I'm following you. I have nowhere else to go. We see that sort of honesty, that sort of transparency in Peter's life. Like, I, I, there's nowhere else to go. Peter is fully himself. No matter what gospel you read about Peter, he's fully himself. He's a rich and complex character, and he stays the same in every gospel. There's not one gospel that portrays him better than another one. They're all the same. You just get Peter. That's it. Even the one that Peter wrote, Peter wrote the book of Mark through Mark. Like, Mark retells Peter's story of Jesus. Even in there, he looks the same. Even when he tells a story about himself, and he'll actually leave out cool things that he did. And the other gospel writers have to talk about it. Because Peter, it just, he, he becomes a very humbled man. He is the most human of all New Testament Bible characters. He's the most relatable. And I, th- I, and I, and I think the most human part of Simon Peter that we can relate to is how time and time again, how time and time again, Jesus... It's going to sound weird or even wrong, but listen. How time and time again Jesus failed to meet Peter's expectations of who Jesus was. Does that make sense? What the the thing that Peter is that, that makes Peter the most relatable, the most human to me anyway, maybe to you as well, is that when he's wrestling with who Jesus is, Jesus continues over and over again to fail to meet what Peter thinks Jesus should be. And it's like this discovery process. This is so huge. There's this discovery process of learning who Jesus is by walking with him. There's a whole discovery process. And, and through that process, Peter discovers who he is. Peter becomes the rock. Peter is told, you are the rock. And he tells Jesus, you are the Christ. I love, there's a part, a part when Jesus first meets Peter, he says, you will be the rock. And then when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he doesn't say you will be, he says you are. You are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Meaning, I'm gonna build my church, Peter. I'm gonna use you to do it. I'm gonna use you, I'm gonna build the church. I'm gonna use you and these disciples. I'm gonna use you to build this church. And then, and then Peter just totally fails. Like we all do. He's like, and then Jesus is like, yes, you're right. I am the Christ, and you are Peter. You're the rock. I'm the Christ. You're the rock. And just so beautiful, that friendship there of telling each other who they are. You're the Christ. And Jesus is like, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church upon you. He's like, oh, cool. Thanks. That's neat. He's like, okay, I'm going to go to the cross. He's like, come here. Come here. Don't talk like that. You're the Christ, man. Like, get your head in the game. You're not going to the cross. You're not going to suffer and die. You're not doing that. And Jesus is like, okay, now you're Satan. 
Like you were the rock, but now you're Satan, okay? And you're stumbling me. No, I'm going to that cross. See, Peter had in his mind, like, Jesus is this, and Jesus is that, and Jesus is this, and Jesus had to undo all that. He had to teach them, this is what it means for you to be the rock. See, Peter thought he knew what it meant to be the rock. Peter thought, okay, what, what it means to be the rock? I had to be strong all the time, and I had to be valiant, I had to be, have courage, I'm going to do all this stuff, and that's what it means to be the rock, but that wasn't what it meant. And he thought that what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ was that he would be Messiah and king and rule and reign over Jerusalem by destroying his enemies. And he thought he understood what that meant. This is what happens with us. We have this picture of who Jesus is. Because we live in the western United States, we have this very, very different picture of who Jesus is. And we think we know who we are. And there's this process of walking with Jesus that you realize that Jesus is not like anything I thought. He's completely other. He's to be worshipped. He's, he's, he's worthy of me giving my whole entire life to him. When we realize that, when we see him that way. Actually, the, the way that Mark, the way that Mark tells a story, again, it's Peter's story is like a whole discovery of who Jesus is where no one really understands who Jesus is until the very end of the story. When Jesus is dead on the cross and a centurion says, that's the son of God right there. And this is how Peter told a story. When he told the gospel story, he told it like no one knew who he was. And then when they thought they knew who he was, Jesus kept on saying, don't tell anyone who I am. Why can't we tell anyone? Because you don't have the right picture of me. And then at the very end, well, in the beginning, I kind of thought I knew who he was. I thought he was the Christ, and then he was not going to the cross. I said, you can't go to the cross. But then he rebuked me, and I didn't even see it. And then at the end, he's on the cross, and a centurion saw him and said, that's the Son of God. And then Peter tells his gospel, do you want to know who the Son of God really is? Do you want to know who Christ really is? He's the one who died for the sins of the world. That's who he is. Peter didn't understand that. And he didn't understand what it meant to be the rock was to be vulnerable. What it meant to be the rock was to have faith only in Jesus, not even himself. He's learning this. It's discovery. But this discovery process is painful. So painful. Let me explain what I mean by these last three scenes I just read to you. They might make more sense on Peter's denial and restoration. Maybe you've never read the story of the denial and the restoration together, but allow me to pull some things out for our time this morning. During the Passover, when Jesus was about to be crucified, during the Passover celebration, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And it's a week-long festival that culminates in the sacrificial lamb, pure and spotless. Everyone has a Passover meal. As is going in, Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. Now, no one really, I mean, we get it, we get it, like, looking back, we understand the humility there, but when it was happening, that was what they can find. They grab, Jesus said, grab a colt, bring it to me, he sits on it, and then as he enters into Jerusalem, everyone starts to see Jesus and starts to throw palm branches on the ground saying, Hosanna, save, Lord, save now, and they're worshiping him, and they're laying down their, 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 their blankets, they're laying down their palm branches, and they're worshiping, and Peter is seeing this going, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. We're going into Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to be, become the Messiah. He's going to take over Jerusalem. He's going to take over the Roman Empire. He's going to take over all the, the fake religious leaders. He's going to establish himself as Messiah. Here it is. And look, at everyone knows it, too. He's, he's being worshipped. So they go in, and so Peter has this in the back of his mind. My, my, my Messiah, my Lord, my rabbi is going to become king. So he comes in. Then they have a Passover meal. And then Jesus does this super weird thing. After the meal, he takes off his like, outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist like, like a servant would. And he goes to the corner, he grabs a bowl and he fills it with water and he goes back to the disciples and he kneels down on the floor and he starts to wash their feet. Now, again, our context, we're like, that's what servants do. Oh my gosh, how love. No, 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 no. This was bad. This was really, really bad. There was a rabbinic law put into place because uh, the disciples of rabbis were getting carried away. Like they were doing so many things for their rabbi because they were just trying to serve him that there had to be like limits. And where they drew the line was touching or washing or taking off the sandals of your master's feet. There was this law that said this, every task that a slave does for his master will the disciple do for his teacher except one. He shall not loose the thong of his sandal. 
So there's a limit. If you are a disciple of a rabbi, there is a limit to what you can do to serve that rabbi. You can learn from him. You can dote over him. You can do all this, but you could not untie his sandal. Remember John said, there's comes one that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Like, I can't even, so Jesus, not only is he the rabbi, the Messiah, the teacher, the king, in their mind, but he's taking the form of a servant and doing what not even a servant should do. Not even, not even what, uh, what they're allowed to do. He's doing what they're not even allowed to do. They wouldn't even think about washing Jesus' feet. They're like, we're not even allowed to do that. But Jesus starts washing theirs. So Jesus starts washing their feet, and he gets to Peter. And Peter's like, pulls his feet away. He says, oh, don't touch my feet. It's not like he has a feet thing. He's like, no, you can't. Don't, don't, touch my, don't touch my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. You have no part with me. I have to wash your feet. Peter was like, you are my king, you are the Messiah, there is no way in the world that Messiah washes feet. You get your feet washed. You don't wash feet. Don't touch my feet. It is, there's no way I'm letting you do that. Jesus like, if you, if you don't, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. And so Peter says, well then, like, wash my whole body as well. Now, Peter's just, he's just weird. Like, so Jesus is like, okay, no, I don't, I don't have to do that. Um, I'm just going to wash your feet, okay? Because, and then Jesus goes into like a teaching thing. He's like, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Not everyone's clean. He's speaking to Judas because he's a betrayer. It's like, not everyone's clean, Judas, but... <laughs> It's just a really funny, and Peter's like, no, wash it, like, baptize me then. If you're going to do this, let's do this. He's like, no, no, I just have to wash your feet. And at this point, Peter's like, I'm so confused. <laughs> and he would probably, I mean, and his, he's not saying that loud, but he's confused. He's like, Messiah, you know, Palm Sunday, he's coming down, everyone's Hosanna, he's washing my feet, but he won't baptize me, but he's, he'll wash my, this is not making any sense. Okay, the very next scene, Pete, Jesus says, okay, all of you. All of you will deny me tonight. And then Jesus, this almost crushes Peter's psyche, almost crushes his resolve, almost crushes his courage. He says, I will not, I will not, even if, and this is what Peter says, even if every other one of these disciples says they don't love you, I will. Even if they all deny you, I won't. Even if they all run, I won't. Peter, Jesus, I have your back. You are gonna be installed as king, and I have it. I am with you. I will die with you. And Jesus says, nah, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you even know me three times. And this almost crushes him. The next scene, they go to the Gethsemane, and Jesus goes to pray, and Jesus starts to, like, weep. He starts to get overcome with agony. He starts to, it says, sweat drops of blood. He has this, this wrestling with the Father where he's like, God, Father, I can't go through with this cup. I can't go to the cross. I can't be separated from you. I can't do this. And he goes to Peter, and he brings Peter, James, and John with him, and he tells them to watch and pray. Now, watch and pray is military language. Like, you have the night shift. You are watching. And if there's anyone coming out, you, it's military language. Watch and pray. Keep watch. Be alert. So Peter's there. He's watching, but he can't stay awake because they, had, they lingered at the table for a very long time. The Last Supper was a long meal very full meal. There's wine in, in the meal as well. And so he's like, can't stay awake. It's the middle of the night. He falls asleep. Jesus comes back. They're all asleep, but he only rebukes Peter. He wakes, get, wake, wake up. What are you doing? I told you to watch and pray. Peter, watch and pray. Goes back. He does this three times. Every single time, Peter is asleep. He doesn't understand, but he's, he's trying to watch, but he doesn't have the, the energy to. But then, the next scene, an army shows up. An army shows up, and it's led by Judas. Strangely, Judas has disappeared from the meal, and they don't know where he is. But he's leading these soldiers in to arrest Jesus. Okay, now put this all together. Messiah, king, taking over Jerusalem, coming into Jerusalem, writing, everyone saying, Hosanna, everyone saying, save us. Watch and pray. There might be someone trying to attack tonight. And then an army comes to take Jesus, and what does Peter do? Peter grabs his sword 
Now, he's the only one to do this. Now, typically, when you hear this in a church, you just said, Peter is wrong. Yes, he's wrong, but he has the best, out of all the disciples, the best intention. He's like, I will protect you. I told you I will not deny you. I have my sword. Now, the funny thing is, is that Jesus had told him to buy that sword, and at least one other disciple had a sword, because they had two, at least two. So another disciple, we don't know who had a sword, and when Peter pulled out a sword, the guy was like, oh, I, don't, I have my sword, but I'm not. <laughs> no, none of the other disciples were like, no, this is God's will. Like, let him, no one was. Everyone was a coward. Everyone, it said, ran away after this. Peter went and grabbed his sword. He goes, oh, it's on. Like, you're going to come and take Jesus, and he's going to become king? Messiah, kings, fight their enemies. It, you're the enemy. Judas, I can't believe you. And he goes, and he grabs a sword, and he lops off someone's ear. Now, I thought this was the weirdest thing in the world. You have a sword. Your king's about to be taken. Go for something other than the ear. Like, the ear of all things. Like, the ear. Like, oh, mm, gotcha. Like, the ear. But this is actually the earlobe. So what happens is that Peter grabs a sword, which would have been like a dagger, and he goes for someone's throat. Like literally, to st- Peter was trying to stab or slice someone's throat. And Malchus, the high, the, the high, priest, servant's, um, the high priest servant, was there, and he was the one that Peter thrust the sword at, and he backed up. This is what I think. I, don't, I wasn't there. He backed up, and it caught his earlobe. Like he tried to cut him, and he's like moved away, and it caught his earlobe, and his earlobe was cut off. Now, if everyone, and it was chaos, they were arresting Jesus, everyone's yelling, everyone's shouting, and the chaos, if, every, if anyone would have saw that this happened, Peter would have been immediately sentenced to death. He, he cut the high priest's servant's ear off. But Jesus, it says, in Dr. Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke, I love him for putting this in, Jesus, like, I don't know if he just, if he picked it up, if he found it, and he was like, boom, he put it back on, but he healed his ear. He walked up to Malchus, and he, and he healed it. And it's completely gone. Now, there was probably still blood on his sword, but Malchus was completely healed. And then Jesus rebuked Peter again. Again. Peter's been being rebuked the whole entire night. You, you, I have to wash your feet. You will deny me. Stay up and watch. And then Peter now does the most valiant thing he could think of. I will protect my Lord. And Jesus says, Put your sword away. Peter's like, what? Put my sword away? Why would I put my, you told me to get this sword. I thought we were all like in this. We said, you said I would deny you. I said, I'm not denying you. I'm here with you. I will die with you. Like, can you imagine the thrust of Peter's like, he's, he's the Messiah. He's going to be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. I have to, the Messiah that I know fights his enemies. And this here, this Last straw breaks Peter. When you put these scenes together, this crushes Simon Peter. This crushes his courage. This crushes all his belief and who he thought Jesus was. This crushes everything. Everything at this point is now broken and lost. He follows Jesus still. Notice, everyone else goes away, but Peter, and I assume John, is following Jesus, but now Peter follow him, follows him at a distance. And a lot of commentators like Reem, Peter, see, follows at a distance. Everyone else left. Everyone else left. They all ran in fear. Mark even talks about some naked guy that runs. It's just weird. Like, and there was a guy who ran through the field naked. Like, what? Why did you put that in there? It's like beta breakers in the middle of uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Anyway, so, so, but Peter follows at a distance, and he's following, and then Someone recognizes him. Aren't you with Jesus? Now, Peter says, I don't know him. Now, could you for a second just think about that a little bit differently? I don't, I don't think I know who that is. I don't know him. Like, I thought I was following the Messiah. I thought I was following the one who would rule and reign. I thought I would follow the one who would kill his enemies, not be killed by his enemies, not be killed for his enemies. I don't know him. Whatever that is, whatever, whoever he, I didn't sign up for, I don't know him. But you were, you were with him. I don't, I don't know that man. I swear, I don't know that man. See, Peter has seen every conceivable prophecy vividly fulfilled in detail by Jesus. 
How can Jesus be arrested? This Messiah, how can he be arrested? Peter's like, I don't even know who you are anymore. Yes, there is, there's fear there. There's all that stuff that's there, but what's underneath it is different. He's like, I don't know who that is anymore. People will say that Peter's denials were rooted in fear. His three denials were rooted in fear. Now, I don't know if the, I totally buy that. I don't know if Peter's denials were truly rooted in fear. I mean, there was some of it there, but rooted in fear? He proved when he drew his sword he was willing to die with and for Jesus. He was the only other disciple other than John who followed Jesus when he was arrested. I don't believe that fear was the overwhelming motivator for Peter's Peter's denial. I believe it was despair. Peter's heart was crushed. Peter was going through his own Garden of Gethsemane, and he didn't pass. He was being crushed, and his heart failed. It was despair. This was no way for a Messiah to act, he thought. The Messiah that Peter expected was one who had servants washing his feet, the one who could call down legions of angels and destroy his enemies. Peter's Messiah would have drawn his own sword as well, a king who would take up his arms to kill his enemy. Never would Simon Peter imagine a king who would die to save his enemies. Never. The despair in Simon's heart was so thick that even when he sees Jesus' empty tomb after the resurrection and he sees the grave clothes neatly folded, it says in Luke's gospel that Peter walked away wondering what was happening. He's like, what is going on? Like, Messiah, and then he dies, and now his grave is gone. Like, he's not even in his grave anymore, but someone folded his clothes. Like, what is happening? He didn't know. All Peter's expectations of Jesus are blown up, and he is completely broken. But Peter, the rock, is broken in the best way possible. See, there's no bigger epic fail than Peter's denial of Jesus. But like I said earlier, Peter is just like all of us. Peter's like every single one of us, but just more so. Only John records it, and I'm so glad he did. It was very early in the morning. Jesus starts a fire by the Sea of Galilee. He starts a fire, and once the fire started, he yells out to the boat. You guys have any fish? They're like, no. No, we're not really good at this thing. Um, Try on that side of the boat. Now, this was like, I kind of read this like a, um, you know those cute things that couples say to each other and they know the the inside joke? This was kind of like that. When Jesus first called Peter, he said, try the other side of the boat. And that's when Peter was like, I've been here all night. He says again, try the other side of the boat. And you can imagine there's something going on like, oh, that reminds me of something. And they do it. And then the same thing happens, just a giant net full of fish. And then John's like, "It's, it's the Lord. And Peter puts on the clothes. I don't even know why he puts on. Why would you put on a fisherman's jacket to jump in the water? But he does. Maybe he's expecting to walk on the water or something. I don't like, coat, walk on water, run to Jesus. I've done it before, kind of. So I don't know what he's doing, but he jumps in. He swims to Jesus, and he gives Jesus a hug, and it's a cold morning, and he begins to warm himself by this fire. Now, did you connect the, the thing? Um, Jesus or Peter would deny Jesus warming himself by a fire. And he would deny Jesus three times. And then Jesus would build a fire and call Peter to it. And Peter would be, war- be cold, wet, you know, warming himself by this fire. And then three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Like it's so loving of Jesus. It's so restorative. Jesus is like, do you love me? And he says this, he goes, Simon. He, and you know what, ironically, Jesus never calls Peter, Peter. He calls him Simon. He says, you will be called Peter. But he always calls him Simon. He says, Simon. Son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what are these? It it could be like the boat and the fish, like his old job. It could be that. Or it could be the disciples. They were all around there too. Do you love me more than these? I mean, I can't imagine Peter not thinking about saying, even if everyone else leaves you, I will never leave you. I love you more than all of these. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, They were likely speaking at that time in Aramaic, the language, in Aramaic. John, the writer, writes 
the book, his book, in Greek. So they might not have said this exact same thing, but there was something implied in the exchange between Jesus and Peter that John took note of, and when he wrote it in his gospel, he changed the Greek word. We only have one Greek word for love, or one English word for love. There's like four or five Greek words for love. And Peter, or John uses two. And Jesus says this, Peter, do you agape? Do you agape me? Do you love me? Like, and agape is like this unconditional love, like a no matter what love. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Peter responds, but he doesn't respond, I agape you. He responds with another word, like brotherly love, like phileo. Now, think about this. Peter was impulsive and impetuous and said, I can do anything. I will never leave you. I love you more than anyone. I'm amazing. And then now he's been humbled. And he's there with Jesus. And Jesus is like, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than anything? Do you love me more than all? And Peter, in all humility, having failed, he says, I don't know. Like, all I know, Jesus, is that I love you. Do I love you more than them? I don't know. Will I never, ever, 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 ever betray you again? I honestly don't want to. But I'm flesh. I love you. Everything within me, I love you. I will not say I will conquer the world. I will not say I will never, ever, ever sin again. I will not say any. I will just say this. I love you. Because pride comes before a fall. And I love you. And Jesus is good enough for Jesus. He says, then feed my lambs. He asked him again, do you love me? He used the same Greek word, agape. Peter used the same Greek word, phileo. And the third time, Jesus says, do you phileo me? And then Peter's like, yes. I phileo you. I love you. Now, this is a good question. Do you love Jesus? We can have the right orthodoxy. We can have the right doctrine. We can fall in love with all of that and not fall in love with Jesus? And it's a great question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love him in word and deed? But do you also love him in emotion? Do you have feelings for Jesus? It's possible that our love for God can wean. I've seen it in my own life. And to come back to a place where you're, you're affectionate, you're in love with God, to come back to that place requires true sorrow and repentance. Like Peter did. He wept bitterly. He realized he sinned. He realized he had other lovers. He realized that he denied Jesus. He realized it, and he wept, and he repented. It also takes, and this is what might be happening right now, it also takes God moving toward us in hospitality. Do you see the invitation of Jesus? Building a fire, come and warm yourself with this fire, make yourself breakfast, do you love me? That invitation, this is what Jesus does. Maybe you feel that right now, like God, throughout our time this morning, is moving towards you in hospitality. Like God is showing you your weaning love for him and moving you, inviting you back in. And even through my words, he's coming to you, saying the words to you, my child, do you love me more than these? more than your job, more than your money, more than your romantic life, more than your orthodoxy, more than your insistence on being right. Do you love me? And will we be honest enough to go, God, I, I love you. Are you moved with personal affection towards Jesus? If so, then tell him. Say, yes, Lord, I love you. I'm moved in love towards you. What is the secret of loving Christ? It's knowing that Jesus knows all things and he offers us redemption and forgiveness and we receive it. Jesus taught one time at a meal. A prostitute came in and started washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and there's these religious leaders and Pharisees around and they were like, if Jesus knew who that was, that prostitute was, who's touching his feet and washing his feet, he would say, just get away from me. He would have nothing to do with that woman. And Jesus is like, you know, can he read hearts? So he knows what they're saying. And so Jesus turns to Peter, to Peter, and says, Simon, I have a story for you. I have a question. He's like, oh, carry on, Lord. There's a, there's a guy who owed $50, $50. And then another guy who owed $50,000. 
and they were both forgiven their debt. Who do you think loves more? Who do you think loves the forgiver more? And Peter's like, the one who owed 50,000. He loves way more than the one who just owed 50. He said, you're right. Jesus knew that Peter needed to learn that lesson. He said, whoever's been forgiven much loves much. He knew that that needed to be captured in Peter's mind, in Peter's heart, because Peter would be forgiven so much. Peter was that woman. We are too. When Jesus was asking him, Peter, do you love me? Peter's love for Jesus was as big as his sin, if not bigger. As big as his failure, and he failed big. But now that Jesus had died and rose again and restored Simon Peter, he loved big. He loved God. This is the secret of loving Christ and loving one another. Knowledge that we have been forgiven much. And Peter would get his chance to die for Jesus. Church history and tradition says that Peter died in Rome. Before he was killed, his wife, Peter's wife, was killed in front of him. And the last words recorded, this, was record, this has been recorded in church history and tradition, the last words that Simon Peter said to his wife before they killed her in front of him was, woman, remember Jesus. And when they went to kill Peter, his only request was that he not die in the same manner as his Lord. And so they crucified him upside down. What privilege is this to love Jesus? To live for him, and like many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing today, to die for him. The blood of the martyrs is called the seed of the church. And may it be. Church, may we love Jesus. May we live for Christ. And may our affection for Christ be poured out now. God, we love you. I mean, we really, I love you, Lord. I thank you for forgiving us much. Forgiving us of our sin, of our rebellion, of our pride, of our, of our self-righteousness. God, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for moving toward us. How you move toward Peter is how you move toward us in the incarnation and the crucifixion and resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And may our church be moved toward affection for you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.